Lord, we thank you for your presence in our lives. We thank you, Lord God, that you're a good God. You're a faithful God. You desire to speak to your people. And so we thank you, Lord, for this moment together. We thank you for your Holy Spirit in our presence. Lord God, we just thank you for the way you're working in and through each one of us. And so, Lord, we pray that even as we approach your word today, we thank you that it's alive, that it's active, Lord. And so we approach it reverently, but we also do expectantly, Lord God, believing that you desire to, your, to speak to your people. Lord God, we declare there's no God like you, and Lord, there'll be no other God before you in our lives. We make that declaration today, and we thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise God. You may be seated today. Can we give this worship team a hand this morning? Just thank you. Thank you for leading us this morning into the presence of God. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24, can you believe it? We're a year into this and we're almost uh, to the end. Um, But before we jump into the text this morning, there's just something on my heart as your pastor that I want to share with you uh, because uh, this month marks five years since I stepped into the role as the lead pastor here at Grace Point. And um, praise God, he's faithful through it. Many of you know I had the privilege of working under my father's leadership for 12 years before that transition, and so it's been uh, 17 years that we've been back here at the church, Sadie and I, and I I can tell by uh, my son's age. My son, my youngest, was born when we moved here, so I always know. It's been 17 years uh, that we've been back here, and if you know our story, originally uh, we both had a heart for the mission field. We left here in 1999, right around there, 2000. Uh, going out to the mission field, 99, uh, thinking we would never return to Rockland County, but the Lord had other plans. And so he brought us back here, and it's just such a privilege uh, to to put down roots somewhere and see what God can do uh, over time, uh, you know, through our lives. In, In our first seven years of marriage, we moved 11 times, and I think we got tired of that, and so the Lord brought us here, and it's just been a good, a good thing. And, um, you know, it's, it's our desire to, to be here long term, should the Lord tarry, hopefully another 20 years at least. And uh, with that goal in mind, um, here's what we've realized, that uh, I'm in a season right now where I realize that I need some refreshing and some reset. And so I, I began a discussion with our elders recently about what I feel is just kind of a great need in my life and in my family's life right now. Uh, there's been many times this year that I just felt like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm at the end of myself. And so I'm just uh, asking the Lord for some refreshing through uh, a sabbatical. Now, you may say, well, what exactly is a sabbatical? Well, biblically speaking, sabbaticals are provision for restoration. In the same way that, that Sabbath is a time of rest, it's a time of rest for restoration. Um, that's what a sabbatical is, is meant to be. And so we're reading as a family uh, through the Bible this year. And so this, this week was the whole book of Exodus. And Exodus talks about a, a time when a field gets depleted. After six years of farming and planting and harvesting, you leave that field alone for a year so that the nutrients in the soil can be replenished. Now, that's a step of faith to leave a field alone and let it rest, right? Because you're not going to get anything that year. But here's what you know, and here's what God knew, that you'd get a greater harvest the following year, right? It's going to produce even more. And so over this past year, I've just felt the need for a time of replenishment in my life and in my family's life. Because as your pastor, I've got to tell you this, I don't want to burn out. I want to go the distance, and it's, it's humbling sometimes to say, I just need a moment to, to catch my breath. How many of you watch football? Anybody watch that game yesterday? Did you stick with it? 
I was like, man, this is over. I'm not watching that. But a lot of times you're watching football and there's that guy that just wants to stay in and you're like, bro, go catch your breath for a moment. You're, you're no good if you don't catch your breath. And, and, and when you talk about ministry in the long term, I got to tell you the statistics regarding longevity and ministry are not great. According to statistics in 2018 from, from Barna Research, from Focus on the Family, Fuller Seminary, almost 1,500 pastors leave their ministry positions every month due to spiritual burnout or moral failures or issues within the church. 80% of pastors say they feel discouraged in their roles. 50% of pastors say they would leave the ministry, but they have no other way of making a living. 80% of seminary and Bible school graduates, check this out, leave the ministry within five years, the first five years. I'm like, man, you went to school for six years, and then you last five. 70% of pastors constantly fight depression, and only one out of 10 pastors retire in the ministry as a pastor. Now, those are discouraging numbers, but I want to be that one out of the 10. And, and hear me this morning. I'm not sharing these statistics to whine or complain or tell you how tough it is to, to be a pastor because the truth is I can't imagine doing anything else with my life. And, and your encouragement and your support make it a joy and make it a blessing for us to serve in this way. I think all of our staff know how good we have it because you guys are an amazing congregation. And that's why it's important to me, it's important to our elders, that our pastors, myself included, are personally, spiritually, emotionally healthy, okay, so that we can lead and shepherd in a way that honors God and is a blessing to all of you. And so as I shared this, this felt need with our elders, they're 100% supportive of the idea. Our trustee board is going to meet this week to talk about some of the details, but the plan is that, that me, uh, I would take some time, my wife and I and the family take some time away for some rest, renewal, reset of some healthy disciplines in our lives, and, and, and Sadie and I, the family, we would greatly appreciate your prayers in the coming weeks as we prepare for that time, all right? And just pray that it would be a time of refreshing, uh, invigoration, um, really it's a time that we're just saying we want to be spiritually rejuvenated, uh, have greater vision for what's ahead. Sometimes when you're in the midst of it, you can only see around the corner, but we believe that God would have us to see further than that and to continue to press into the vision and the future that God has for this church. Amen? And so I just want to say thank you for your support. Thank you for your encouragement. Um, I can't tell you how much that means to us, means to our family. It, it's a true joy. It's, it's an honor uh, to lead, and I, and I can't wait to see. I can't wait to see what God has in store for Grace Point. So we'll talk more about this next week, but I just wanted to, to bring you up to speed on some discussions that have been going on. Uh, again, we're, we're looking uh, for, for long-term health for the church, for myself, for our entire pastoral staff, and that's why uh, we have this in mind. Amen? Well, I'm excited to get into our text today. If you have your Bibles, again, Acts chapter 24. Hopefully you got a note sheet when you came through the door. I do want to say our, our community groups are starting up not this week, but next week. And so some of the things that we share today are going to be discussed in community groups. So I encourage you, take out a pen, take some good notes. Like I always say, if you don't have a pen, look for the woman in the aisle with the biggest pocketbook. She's got five or six of them. Just make sure you give it back. Amen. Well, as we pick things up in chapter 24, we remember uh, that last week we saw the providence of God over Paul's life as he protected him in Jerusalem. And 470 Roman soldiers would end up escorting Paul out of Jerusalem. And not only does Paul escape alive, which is a miracle in and of itself, but he does so riding on a horse. In fact, he's got many horses to choose from. That's God's blessing, God's provision. And so Paul is now in Caesarea. He's in Herod's palace 
on the coast where he will stand trial before Governor Felix. Chapter 24, verse 1. It says there, and after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and spokesmen, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. So after being held for five days, the high priest Ananias, he arrives in Caesarea. He's brought some elders, meaning others from the Sanhedrin with him. He's brought his lawyer. Apparently, he hired a Greek orator, a skilled lawyer, to help him make his charges against Paul. Now, the presence of all these men, it reminds us of how serious the Sanhedrin was about getting a conviction against Paul. Historically, we know that Ananias was willing to cooperate with Rome when it was beneficial to him, when it advanced his causes. And right now, there's one thing in this story he wants from Rome, and that is to see Paul executed. Verse 2. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Tertullus begins his oration with praises of Felix. And if this is all we read about Felix, we could be tempted to think that he was a good man. However, Josephus tells us that Felix was actually recalled to Rome at one point for the brutal way that he ended a dispute between the Syrians and the Jews. Antonius Felix was his name. And he actually began his life as a slave, but his brother was a friend of Emperor Claudius, and it was because of his brother's influence that Felix rose in status. First of all, he gained his freedom, and then he worked his way all the way up to becoming the first former slave to become a governor of a Roman province. But according to Tacitus, the Roman historian, Felix was described in this way. He said, he was a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. The the picture of of Felix's public and private life was not a pretty one. He seemed to indulge in every license and every excess, thinking that, that he could do any evil that he wanted to do without punishment. Now, when you understand that, you you know why Tertullus' praise here on behalf of Ananias is so hypocritical. These were lies presented as flattery. Felix did not bring peace, and he did not bring prosperity. Can I just say, we don't think of it this way, but understand flattery is one sin that's often not seen as sin. Jude 1.6 speaks of those whose mouths tell great swelling words. They're flattering people to gain advantage. There's four different occasions in the book of Proverbs that connect the flattery of sin with sexual immorality. Why? Because sadly, many have been seduced into immorality through flattery. Psalm 78, verse 36 says that we can even flatter God. Verse 36 says, but they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Listen, God doesn't want your insincere praise. That is simply flattery. But I'm sure Felix himself was wise enough to hear these words and wonder, man, what do these guys really want? You see, the Sadducee party especially needed Rome's cooperation and and even their intervention against Jewish rebel groups that would rise up. And and because of this, you could say his words are are somewhat sincere. You're going to help us out, but really they're just flattery. And then he says, verse 4, but to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Tertullus' case will be brief simply because he doesn't have much of a case at all. Really, he's relying on the favor of Felix to bend the law now in order to prosecute Paul. Verse 5, for we found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Pharisees. A plague, wow, that's a strong word, isn't it? 
You see, the, the charges against Paul are essentially he's a political danger. Now, the first accusation is that Paul is the one who disrupts the peace. He's starting riots all over the Roman world. This guy is like a plague that's spreading and he needs to be stopped. Now, Paul hasn't said a word yet, right? He hasn't had an opportunity to defend himself, but I can only imagine he's sitting there and there's a smirk on his face as the claim is made that his message is affecting the world. But to say he's stirring up riots, that's completely false. We saw that during his missionary journeys, it was the the Jews who didn't accept Jesus as Messiah. They were the ones who stirred up the riots, not Paul. But here they say he's the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, this is the only place in scripture where that phrase is found, the sect of the Nazarenes. It's the only place it's used to describe believers. And really, it's meant to be an insult. You remember when the word is spreading that the Messiah was coming from Nazareth, right? The question was asked, can anything good come from Nazareth, right? There are places like that today that you can think of. You say, I probably don't want to be associated with that place. I'm not going to name any because it might be your hometown. I'm going to offend somebody. But you can think of one, right? And Nazareth is that kind of place. And so it's this insult to say the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, more commonly, believers were referred to as Christians, but initially that wasn't even a compliment. That was a dig to call someone a little Christ. And so I shared it before, really the most common way to refer to Christianity in that time was this term, the way. Because remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It it was understood that Christianity was was more than a mental assent to certain facts, right? But it was a way of living. And the way was not an illegal sect of Judaism, but it's one that the high priest wanted to, to paint in a bad light. Remember, in the past, other governors accepted it as as a protected part of Judaism. Again, most of the riots were stirred up by the Jews, and and the rest were from intolerant idol worshipers. They realized, man, Christianity's coming to town, and it's affecting our business. And so these riots would start. Remember, who started the riot in the temple? It, It wasn't Paul. It was men who followed Paul that started the riots in Asia Minor. Verse 6. It says he even tried, they say he even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. So this is the second charge, okay? He's tried to profane the temple. This was the, the only real specific charge. Think about it. Someone saying he's a plague is, is not really a charge is all, at all, right? It's like taking somebody to court and what are the charges? Well, he's mean. Okay, that doesn't work, right? That's not a charge, that's an opinion, right? Why are we really here? And so this is the only specific charge against Paul, and at the same time, they have no evidence for the charge because there is no evidence. This was a charge that was fabricated based on rumors. Paul was hoping the truth would come out because he had nothing to fear from the truth, and at the same time, he knew that truth doesn't always win out in a court like this. It's amazing because the the, the same man who found it so easy to flatter Felix also finds it easy to accuse someone with no evidence. Remember this today, that flattery is a form of deceit. And so be very careful of the person who will flatter you today because they will likely accuse you tomorrow with no evidence. Hear me, if they're not afraid to lie to you to flatter you, they won't be afraid to lie to accuse you. Verse eight, by examining, by examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. 
It's amazing because Tertullus, this great lawyer, he doesn't even pretend to offer evidence of the charges. Really, his hope is that Paul's going to say something that incriminates him under examination by Felix. And so he tells Felix, well, if you ask the right questions, you're going to come to the same conclusions that we've made. And really, the implication there is that if your conclusion differs, then you're just not smart enough to ask the right questions. In essence, he's saying, you should be smart enough, sir, to figure it all out. But Felix doesn't fall for that. Verse 9, the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So the other Jewish accusers that are present, again, the high priest, the elders, they're they're listening to the charges from the lawyer, and they're shaking their heads and saying, that's right, that's right, right? But again, no one has any evidence. But the fact that these Jewish elders are so quick to agree with Tertullus means that they are now complicit with the lies. Verse 10, and when the governor had nodded to, him to, nodded to him to speak, Paul replied. Now, I want to stop there for a moment because I want you to picture what's happening in this, this trial. Again, Paul is on trial. And he's on one side of the room. And on the other side of the room, there's the prosecuting attorney. There's the head of the Sanhedrin. There are all these religious leaders. But Paul's by himself. Paul has no defense attorney. He's got no one else uh, in the court to state his case. But what I love here is he doesn't run and hide. He he doesn't hang his head in shame. He's not afraid. He knows the truth is on his side, and he knows this, that the Lord is on his side. He knew, as Frederick Douglass once said, one and God make a majority. And, And so he says, knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. I love this because he doesn't try to flatter Felix at all. He just says, I know you've been a judge for a lot of years, okay? Verse 11, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring against me. Right away, Paul goes after that second charge of defiling the temple because it's really the only charge that's brought up. And he says, man, it was just 12 days ago that I was there to worship in the temple. And even though it's been no more than 12 days, they can't find any witnesses to bring forward. And so he's basically saying the fact they have no witnesses 12 days later to prove that I was in the temple inciting the crowd shows there's no evidence of the accusations. Come on, if I was really disruptive, it would be easy to prove. And so now it's Paul's word against that of his accusers. Look at verse 14. He says, but this I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. Paul doesn't hesitate to confess, yes, I'm a follower of the way, I'm, I'm with them. Uh, again, this was considered by Rome as, as a part of Judaism at this point. And Paul is declaring that that he's really a a devout Jew because he worships the God of the Jews and he believes everything that's written down in their sacred writings. Understand when he says this, this would have gone right along with the report from Lysias that this matter was a dispute over the interpretation of scriptures. Again, here's the point of contention. It's this, did Jesus rise from the dead? Because if he rose from the dead, then he's the Messiah. But don't miss this because Paul says, I believe everything that's laid down by the law and written in the prophets. How many of you can say that today? I believe everything that is written in the word of God to be true. Sadly, too many Christians confess to be Christians, don't believe everything in the word of God. 
Their theology is a, a Dalmatian theology. It's spotty at best. Pick a verse here, a story here. Well, I can see how that would be true, and certainly that, that, that makes sense, and I believe that, but I can't see how God would hold us to that anymore. Certainly, that's an antiquated standard. We can't expect to, to, to live by that any longer. So many live that way and approach the word of God that way, but Paul says, I believe it all. <laughs> I believe it all. And the sad reality is these religious men that are standing across the room did not believe it all because they're going against what the word of God had said. They, they did not see the way in which the prophets predicted the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. Look at verse 15. He says, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Paul makes it clear that his hope is in God and the future resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And he's really emphasizing that the way is a part of Judaism. It's not a new religion or a new sect that needs to be suppressed. But it's kind of strange here that he says that his accusers agree with him that there's a resurrection. Because again, the high priest and most of the accusers would have been Sadducees and they don't believe in the resurrection, right? At the same time, most Jews of that day did agree with Paul that there was a future resurrection. And maybe he's saying this because Felix would know because Felix's wife was a Jew. And if his accusers get defensive and they say they disagree, then it highlights the fact that much more that this was the reason behind their accusations. It shows that they were really uh, more out of step with the beliefs of Judaism than Paul himself was. Look at verse 16. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. That's a good verse. Underline that verse. Highlight that verse. I always take pains to have a clear conscience both before God and before man. See, because he believes in the resurrection, Paul believes he's going to have to give an account to God, and so he wants to live in such a way that he would have a clear conscience. They claim he's a plague. They claim he's, he's stirring up the crowds. This is his defense. I live in such a way that I have a clear conscience both before God and man. Listen, if we truly believe that there's going to come a time when we're going to have to give an account to God for the way that we live, we're going to want to live with a clear conscience. Amen? There's so many people that say, well, well, I know my sin is dealt with. Yes, your sin's dealt with. As far as the east is from the west, Jesus has dealt with our sins, but I don't want to live in such a way that I have a bothered conscience that would come in between me and my communion with Jesus. Paul not only wants a queer conscience towards God, look at this, he wants a queer conscience towards man. And here's the reality. A queer conscience towards God must include a queer conscience towards man. Jesus insisted that we need to forgive one another, that we need to even love our enemies, ouch. Now hear me, that doesn't mean we put ourselves in a place where we're under the abuse of others, but we must forgive as the Lord has forgiven us, amen? And so basically Paul is saying the real issue is differences in the interpretation of Jewish law, meaning, hey, listen, Felix, I haven't done anything that has violated Roman laws. Now look at verse 17. It says, now after sev several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. In addressing the claim that 
he's profaning the temple. He says, after years of being away, I came to Jerusalem to worship according to the law, and I even brought offerings. And, and we know that what we do with our money usually declares what we truly believe, right? That's why we encourage you in your giving so often. Scripture says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's a rule for life. Your, your, your heart will always follow your treasure, or your treasure will always follow your heart, both ways, right? Where you place your time, where you place your talents, where you place your treasure, that's where your heart is going to go. Verse 18 says, while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you right now to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Remember, Paul was was completing his, his vow of purification according to the law. He wasn't causing any trouble when these Jews from Asia Minor, they attack him, they start a riot, and so Paul says, well, they ought to be here. Again, it's a reminder, there's no eyewitnesses to prove the charges. That's a strong enough point right there. You get this case thrown out of court, right? There's no eyewitnesses. Why? Because they lied in the first place. Because Paul was in the right, he constantly called the case back to the evidence, right? And and his accusers are trying to avoid the evidence. Listen to me. We as believers should never be ashamed of the truth or the evidence, if, if we truly are following God with a clear conscience, then the truth and the evidence are our friends and they are not our accusers. This was an issue in the political world of that day that would soon be turned into law that if an accuser didn't show up to make a face-to-face accusation, they were abandoning the case and the case would be thrown out. And so right here, think about this, the Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul with a key issue that was making its way into Roman law at that very time. How amazing, right? Verse 20, he says, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I was before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. His present accusers know nothing in regards to the claim, really, that he defiled the temple. They only know about his defense to the council. And so he's basically saying, let them tell me what was wrong with my defense. All I was able to say was, I believe in the resurrection of the dead, and then things went crazy, right? And if that's the reason for him to be standing on trial, then let's be honest, most of the Jewish nation should be on trial with him because they believed also in the resurrection of the dead, right? The resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Look at verse 22. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, I think it's important that Luke points that out. He says, Felix was very familiar with Christianity. He had an accurate knowledge of the way. It says he put them off, saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Here's Felix. He kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because he's trying to, to please the Jewish leadership and he's trying to keep the peace and really the decision should be an, an easy decision. The evidence is clear. There's no case. Let Paul go, Right? But instead of making a decision that might cause him to fall into disfavor with the Sanhedrin, instead he procrastinates. And we're going to see in this chapter, this is not the only time he procrastinates. This man, this, this leader, this ruler, has a hard time making the hard decisions. And yes, this is a hard decision. It's kind of a, a no-win situation, right? You either uh, allow a Roman citizen to be killed or you get the Jewish leadership angry with you. And so instead of making a decision on the case, he says, you know what? When Lysias arrives, he'll decide. He's gonna shine some, shed some more light on this. 
Sure, maybe the, the Tribune could come and he could help clear some things up by telling what he observed, but that would only back up Paul's case and show that his accusations were based on lies. But instead of making the right call, instead of making the difficult decision, Felix decides to do nothing at all. Verse 23, then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Felix avoids making a decision using the lie, hey, I I need more evidence, but clearly he had enough evidence to make a decision in Paul's favor. He, He knew that Paul was innocent, and that's why he granted him more liberty, even when he's held in custody. Instead of making a decision one way or another, Felix tries to walk this middle ground because he doesn't want to identify with Paul. He doesn't want to identify with the Christians, and so he makes no decision at all and he keeps Paul in custody. Now understand, in that time, Roman prisoners were not fed by the prison system. If you didn't have a friend on the outside that brought you food, you were out of luck. You depended on the generosity of others. And so Paul's confined here, but he's not down in the dungeon with the rats. No, he's probably in a much nicer place. If he wants to have guests come and go, they can come and go. It makes being a prisoner a little more comfortable, a little easier, right? If he needed paper and a pen, he, he got paper and a pen. If, if he needed a secretary, okay, Paul, we'll get you a secretary. And thankfully, the church has benefited from that fact till this day. Verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. So some time passes, we're not told how long it is, but after some days, I, I think Felix's curiosity sparked a little bit. He wonders why would a a prominent Jew, why would a a leading Pharisee put himself in this place where he risks his life to speak about the way? And so he and his wife, Drusilla, they call Paul and and they say, you know what, Paul, tell us a little bit about your theology. Tell us a little bit about who you think Jesus is. What an amazing opportunity that is for Paul, right? To just sit there and be able to share. Now, I don't know if Felix wanted his wife to hear Paul's testimony out of curiosity, or maybe he thought, well, she's a Jew, and maybe she can help advise me in this whole situation. I mean, he did claim, I I don't have enough evidence, and so maybe he's looking for her help. But we understand this woman, Drusilla, his wife, uh, there's, there's quite a story behind this, because Drusilla is the sister of King Agrippa II. Remember the Herod family? We've talked about them, right? This is the sister of King Agrippa II, okay? Drusilla uh, was, was beautiful. She was ambitious. She's about 20 years old at this point, and Felix actually seduces her away from her husband and makes her his third wife. And so there in verse 25, it says, and he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. This was Paul's three points as he speaks to Felix and Drusilla. And these are the same three points that many modern preachers avoid speaking about today, especially if they're speaking to someone of of high status or importance like Felix. But, But what I love here is that it says that Paul reasoned with him. The Greek word there means to to think through something, to resolve an issue. And here's the reality. The Christian faith is a very reasonable faith. Sometimes you ask people why they believe what they believe, and they just say, well, I don't know, I just always believed it. You know, why are you a Christian? Why do you believe it? Well, my my parents were Christians, so I just kind of grow up in it, right? But why do you believe what you believe? You see, as Christians, we're called to be able to give a reason for our faith. The word of God says we should be able to give unbelievers a reason for the hope that's in us. Now, Don't miss the response of Felix here. Look at this. It says this, that Felix was alarmed. 
Now just think for a moment what a role reversal this is. Think about it for a moment. Who's in charge? Felix is. Who's the prisoner? Paul is. And so you have the governor who's in charge speaking to the prisoner who's not in charge. He's subject to the decisions of the governor. And so if you're looking at it from the outside, we would think, man, the prisoner should be alarmed, right? Paul should be alarmed and Felix should be laughing. But Luke lets us know, no, it's Felix that's the one that is alarmed. Why? Because of what Paul reasoned with him about. Again, Paul reasoned with him about righteousness, Can you imagine being a fly on the wall of that room and getting to listen to that conversation, right? Felix asked Paul, tell me more about your belief system. Maybe he's, again, looking for a theological discussion, right? Tell me more about what you believe. And Paul's response is bold because, again, he talks about righteousness. He says, let me tell you how you can get right with the living God. Felix, it's evident that you're not living right with God. Let me tell you how to get there. When we talk about righteousness, that's what it means. It means to be right with God. Maybe he shared with him some of the same things that he wrote to the church in Rome, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that the wages of our sin is death, but that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And and so he tells Felix, Felix, here's how you can get right with God. And then what does he talk about? He talks about self-control. Get this, he's speaking to a man who clearly lacks self-control. And generally, you would be a little nervous when you speak this way to someone who lacks self-control because you never know how they're going to respond. But Paul is bold, right? Simply put, self-control is what? It is the ability to control yourself. It's about having the ability to restrain your desires, about not doing everything that you just desire to do because you realize certain things are not good and certain things are not profitable. And so you exercise self-control. Now, why would Felix be alarmed or afraid when he's confronted with this idea of self-control because he knew he had none. <laughs> he, he showed no self-control when he went after another man's wife, when he uh, seduced Drusilla. He's on his third marriage. She's on her second. Again, he lured her away from her previous husband. Felix saw something he liked in life. This is how he lived. I saw something I want, right or wrong, I'm gonna go get it because he lacked self-control. All he cared about was gratifying his flesh. And so get this. Paul is talking to him and he's saying, here's how you can get right with God and here's how you can begin to exercise some self-control in your life. Now, some of us might be bold enough to say what Paul said, not many of us, right? But maybe you'd be bold enough to, but if I was saying this, man, I would be trembling as I'm saying it, right? But, But there's one more thing that Paul talks about. We can't miss it. He speaks about the judgment that is to come. In, in this conversation, Paul's not pulling any punches. He's going for it because I think Paul realizes that while Felix is sitting on the throne right now and judging him, he also knows that one day Felix is going to stand before the throne of God and he's going to be judged by God. I'm sure that helped put things in perspective for him. So again, he's telling Felix, one day you're going to be on trial and then one day you're going to stand before God and you're going to have to give an account for your life, Felix. So Paul reasons with him about righteousness, getting right with God, self-control, controlling those sinful desires in your life, and the coming judgment. Again, one day, you're gonna have to stand before God. You know, so many today tragically avoid the topic of hell or judgment because they think it's an unloving thing to talk about hell. But the reality is the most loving thing that you and I can do is to tell people the truth about eternity. To tell them, Yes, there there is a God that loves them. Yes, there is a heaven that is awaiting them if they would surrender their life to Jesus, but also there is a hell awaiting them if they reject Jesus. 
It's amazing because people think of Jesus as being so loving, but do you know he spoke more about hell than anyone else in scripture? Why? Because he was aware of it. He knew what was at stake. And so he warned about hell more than anyone else. I just think it's amazing here when Paul has the opportunity that he doesn't hold back from speaking the truth. There's a disturbing trend in the church today to somehow soften the gospel. This way of thinking, well, we can't talk about judgment or, or righteousness or self-control, you know. Just, just make people feel good and, and, and let them know they're blessed and just give them some positive reinforcement so they can go out the door. But hear me, church, the most positive thing we can do for someone is to keep them from facing God's judgment in hell. But again, there's this dangerous chant that says we just need to welcome people and love on people. We should never tell anyone, God forbid, how to live their life. But when we're confronted with the word of God, understand it tells us how we ought to live our life. If we allow him to, Jesus will tell us how to live our life. And he's the only one that knows how it ought to be lived. Remember, Christianity was known as the way. If we're following Jesus, we're following the way. Jesus is not a way, he is the way. And so he will tell you how to live your life. Why? Because he loves you and he wants the best for you. But Felix's response here, as you come to the end of this chapter, is very disturbing. Felix was alarmed, it says, and then he said these words. He said, go away for the present. Go away for now. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. Now remember earlier when Felix was put in a place to make a decision concerning Paul's guilt or innocence, he procrastinated. He wouldn't do it. He had all the evidence he needed. He just couldn't make the hard decision. But here's a far more tragic case of procrastination. You see, I think Felix had all the evidence he needed concerning Christ. The governor before him was a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. You recognize that name? So he certainly heard about the crucifixion of Jesus. He heard the message surrounding Jesus' resurrection. Luke tells us he's familiar with the way. He, he knew that Jesus might be that promised Messiah. He had all the evidence he needed. He just wasn't ready to make the tough decision. And maybe his thinking is, well, not now. I'll put that off to later. You know what, I got a few things to get straightened out in my life and then maybe I'll respond to that message. I got a, a few things to, to get in order and then maybe I'll respond to Jesus. Oh, I gotta have a little bit more fun before I, I do anything about self-control. Later on, I respond to, to the message of righteousness. Later on, I'll think about self-control. Oh, there may be a judgment awaiting me, but right now, I'm the one that's sitting on the throne. And so he says, go away and I'll summon you later. Verse 26. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. And so he sent for him often and conversed with him. And when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. It's interesting because it says Felix called on, on Paul a number of times to converse with him. But in the end, it tells us what he was really after. He was hoping for a bribe, right? He heard that Paul was really good at raising funds, and so he thought, man, they must have a GoFundMe campaign going on out there. Paul, bring me the money. We'll get you out of prison, right? But Paul had no way to give Felix a bribe, right? That's what he's waiting for. But even after hearing the gospel and the judgment that is to come, Felix still didn't make the right choice because he didn't want the Jews coming after him. And another ruler succeeds him, and really the fate of Felix is unknown, but we know today that his determination eternal fate was made clear 
by his rejection of the gospel. I want you to see as we close today that this chapter presents us with three types of characters. There's the high priest who's willing to lie, to have his way, and to to keep religious power. He's threatened by Paul, and so he tries to eliminate the the threat, any opportunity he can, right? And, And really, we see, man, his heart is hard towards the things of God. And then there's Felix, the one who had political power, but because he tried to please everyone, in the end, he pleased no one. He heard the gospel, and I'm convinced he was even convicted by it, but he resisted the conviction and continued to live for this world. And then finally, there's Paul. There's Paul. And it's amazing because in this story, let's remember, he's the one on trial. He seems to be the victim, right? He's, he's the one that we should all feel sorry for, and yet we know this, he's a servant of the living God. He's living his life with a clear conscience. He's in constant communion with his creator. He's storing up for himself treasures in heaven, eternal treasures. He is fulfilling the call of God upon his life. In reality, when you look at this whole chapter, the only joy that we see is when Paul is giving his defense because it's an opportunity for him to testify to the grace of God on his life. But when we look at Ananias and Felix and Paul, they all have one thing in common. It wasn't long before each of them passed on from this life into eternity. Would you stand with me as we prepare to close? It wasn't long before each of them passed on from this life, this earthly life, but understand it was only Paul who could declare that he lived his life in good conscience for that day. And I pray this morning that by the grace of God, we'd be able to do the same. I've lived my life in a good conscience before God and and before man because one day, each one of us in this room, we're gonna stand before the throne of God and we're gonna give an account. We're gonna give an account. We're gonna give an account for what we did with God's forgiveness and his grace that's found in Jesus Christ alone. And if we did, then what do we do with the gift of the Holy Spirit that he's given to us? Will we be able to say on that day that the Holy Spirit guided us through this life and that's why our lives actually bore fruit or will we be saved but only as through fire, having our earthly works burned up like much hay and stubble? Listen, I believe today that God is working in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. With heads bowed around the room, I can't help but think that there might be even one in the room today that if you're honest, you've responded to the message of the gospel a lot like Felix. Maybe you've heard the message of righteousness. You've heard the message of self-control. You've heard about this coming judgment, but you've put it off and you said, you know what, I'm gonna do something about that later. But can I just say to not decide for Christ today is to make a decision. To not make a decision is to be decided. And here's the thing. We always think we have tomorrow, don't we? (laughs) Scripture says we're not promised tomorrow. That's why it also says today. Today is the day of salvation. Sadly, I think Felix's procrastination cost him in the worst way. And so I want to plead with you this morning, don't put off following Jesus. Again, today is the day of salvation. And so I just ask before we move from this moment, is there anyone that would just say by an upraised hand, I want to make a decision for Jesus today. I've been walking the line, I've heard it before, I've put it off, but today I want to make a decision. Anyone that would say that just by an upraised hand today. 
Hallelujah. Anyone that would just say, by praise God. I see the hand up there. Praise God. Praise God. Anyone else that would just say, by praise hand. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow Jesus. I want to make that decision. Listen, I'm not going to tell you it's not going to cost you anything. The truth is it's going to cost you everything. But it's well worth it. Anyone else today that would just say, I want to be in right standing with God. I want to receive that gift of salvation. Hallelujah. Praise God. I want to live with a clean conscience. I want to be able to stand before the throne of one of God one day in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Praise God. For those that raised a hand or if that's your desire today, I'm going to ask you to say this prayer out loud after me from your heart. Sort of like vows in a marriage. The couple says them out loud in front of God and in front of witnesses. And so I'm going to pray out loud. Would you pray after me? Say these words from your heart and pray to the Lord. Say, Lord, I give you my life. Take all of it. I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. I believe in Jesus. I place my faith in him. I believe he died on a cross. That he paid for my sin. That he rose from the dead. That he's alive right now. So I turn from my sin. I turn from my past. I turn to you, Jesus. Be Lord and Savior of my life. Help me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. If you pray that prayer today, and you meant it today, we believe there's rejoicing in heaven for that decision you've made. But I want to encourage you as we close today, as we look at the life of Paul again, the fact that he could say, I've lived my life in good conscience before God and before man, that's my prayer. I want to be able to say that. I live my life in good conscience before God and before man. That only comes as we surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit. And so before we close with a song, would you just take a moment and just ask the Holy Spirit to empower you. If that's your desire, I want to live with a clean conscience before God and before man. Allow the Holy Spirit to empower you, that there would be fruit of the Holy Spirit within your life.